Are you a HubSpot user looking to stay up to date with HubSpot, inbound, and all the information that will make your job easier and help you and your company grow better? Each week, the Spot brings you the HubSpot education, ideas, and tools that you need to maximize your success, make work just a little bit easier, and of course, brighten your day along the way. Listen in as Julie, Doug, Max, and George share their authentic, entertaining, and valuable conversations with the people who really matter. That's right, you. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give it up for your HubSpot journey heroes. Welcome to this week's episode of The Spot. All right, well, then with that said, because now there's all smiles, it's time for Ready, Spot, Go. And today we're going to talk about inbound 2020. We're going to talk about simplified versus complex. We're going to talk about like, oh, well, listen, if you've watched the last two, three episodes of the spot, you know, we're going to pretty much talk about anything. So I have a question, though, Doug, Doug and Julie, I figured it'd be fun to kind of start this off. And we do this at, at Impulse Creative with our inbound standups. I wanted to kind of start us off with a talking point. And when I saw this question, to be honest, I thought of you, Doug. Uh, but Julie and Doug, would you rather uh, if your only mode of transportation could be a donkey or a giraffe and why? Uh, I would have to go with a giraffe. Interesting. Because uh, if you if you control the airspace, you control the game. Very nice. Very nice. Julie. I would also go with a giraffe, but it's because giraffes are my favorite animal and non-negotiable. You always pick the giraffe. Ah, nice. So, I, so everybody, if you like what Julie has to say, make sure you send her like a giraffe figurine or something. She, we, she needs it for her uh, background. Yeah. yeah, that'd be tremendous. I used to have a faux giraffe head made out of newspaper, but I got rid of it. Is Were there... you a fan of Jeffrey? Ooh. Um, you know, not my fave. I was I a like Toys R Us kid. Realistic giraffe. Less than but Jeffrey bought toys. Jeffrey bought toys. Yeah. You got a giraffe and toys. Right. Yeah, we didn't like have the budget for Jeffrey. You know and and see, like I okay. told you, folks, we'll talk about anything. Now, with that said, let's rein it in and we'll go with, mmm, that hit the spot. Doug, this week you brought to us a sales article, uh, which was delightful, by the way. Why don't you kind of explain to the viewers or listeners a little bit about the article and why it kind of brought attention and you wanted to bring it to the show? So I... Uh this is like this article is probably about a thousand twelve hundred words something like that but if you read the article you've read a book on modern sales so it, it's actually from gartner uh, by the way gartner's doing some great great stuff on insights in in several places but in uh in, in the world of sales especially uh it's what sales should know about modern b2b marketers here's a couple key points that that i think um you know it, it I'm sharing it because, well, you know, George, my role on the show is to is to break myths, to to bring counterintuitive ideas, and there's a lot of counterintuitivity here. Um, I love the first one because it's like a continuation of our of our last show, right? Yeah. Point yep. number one is customer satisfaction doesn't drive growth, um, and so all this, you know, over and above, above and beyond, et cetera, statistically doesn't actually have a role. Does that company do more business with you? Um, complexity kills deals. Right. And, and what, what you got to understand on the sales side about complexity is the B2B buyer perceives, and, and their research shows 70% of B2B buyers feel that the purchase represents a meaningful change in their business. It doesn't have to have anything to do with what you're selling. You have to understand the impact that it has on them. Um, 
really interesting two things that I think really play off of each other. Customer confidence in their own decisions is crucial. Um, one of the things I teach when we do sales training or sales coaching is we talk about stop selling your stuff, just teach people how to make decisions. Customers who are confident in how they're making decisions are two times more likely to make a decision and, and to make a decision with you. Um, what, what's more, customers' perceptions of themselves is also crucial. I, I didn't think about this until I saw it. They can let you, they can trust you, they can think that you're wonderful, but if they don't trust themselves, it doesn't matter, um, which is kind of like storytelling. You know, too many salespeople think they're Luke Skywalker. You're, you're playing the role of Yoda, you know, be Yoda. Um, the, the perception of the rep is critical, which connects to it's how you sell is more important than what you sell. The point that I loved here was sales reps need a new strategy to engage customers. One that focuses, ready, every sales or marketing person listening to this, less on the brand and more on how the customer perceives the rep. Reps are now, um, customers are naturally skeptical. And one that's not new to me, but I would just love for everyone to understand it is thought leadership doesn't mean anything. Um, thought leadership is not a differentiator. Uh, and by the way, there's research that shows, not in this article, but actually thought leadership actually has a slight negative um, correlation to revenue success. Um, it's not about thought leadership, it's about insights. So that's why I loved it. It's like a full story on if you just if you read nothing else and you read this article and you applied it, you'd be in a you'd be in a good place. So there's a couple of things. There's there's some good things. There's some bad things here. At part of this, when it talked about brand, I actually I could feel myself channeling my inner Remington bag because I think there's a large power of a great brand that can drip or ooze onto a sales rep. And so um, there's a difference, Doug, between trying to sell for, you know, uh, Joe Schmo, uh, you know, hardware, um, and then just being able to say Lowe's or whatever, right? There's there's a difference because of the brand that's wrapped around there. I, I think though that you stole some of my notes because I literally like grabbed points out of this article that I was like, oh, this is so good. And and hang on, hang on. I know you're ready. I was literally just waving. I know you're ready. I know you're ready. Um, but here's the thing. One of the things that really smacked me across the face uh, was that quote that you put where it says, um, hey, they might trust you, but they have to trust themselves. And I stopped and like was like, oh, my God. Like, because we always talk about like, we're in the game of trust, right? Like as, as a sales rep, as a marketer, as a business, like if they can trust you, but we really never talk about enabling them to trust themselves in the decision-making process. So that for me was like this, this little piece, but then at the very beginning, and you kind of gloss over it usually at the beginning of an article where it talks about in a world of information overload. And that's where we're at. Like, we're, we're just there. There is so much information. There's so much content being created. And, and some of it is just to create content for creating sake, if you will. And so like for me, this article, while it is about sales, as a marketer, I was like, huh. It almost puts a little tweak or a spin to the messaging or the content that you would put out uh, as a marketer, I would say. Uh 
I want to hear what Julie says, but I want to I want to just reiterate one thing. The reason I like this article and I shared it is because it's not a sales article. It is a it is a revenue article. It is mm. I don't care. I mean, if 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 this this is everybody in in sales, marketing, service, um, success executive team i mean like you this is an article that you should read and and um and have a discussion in your company about about how does that apply to you etc so uh, absolutely it, it 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 should impact marketers speaking of marketers I, good segue um i liked this one i was reading this and i got that kind of like good tingly niacin feeling that you get when you drink a really good energy drink or something right um very specific feeling if you're an energy drink drinker you felt it um <laughs> hello over here um so what i was brought back to was something um we talked about some marketing predictions and goals for 2020 at the end of last year at impulse creative and it was right when i started uh with the team it might have been slightly before i officially started with the team um and one of the things I had said coming out of 2019 was, I think I'm doubling down on content. And I didn't mean content volume. Mm. I meant content quality and as much as I hate this word, authenticity. And I, there's a tie in Doug, don't worry. I, um, I was with you. <laughs> so when we talk about, right, thought leadership wasn't what it once was brand isn't the thing that people are necessarily buying this the idea of um, a purchasing decision being related to a customer's perception of self i think doubling down on content for me also kind of hits in those areas and that's why i think it's important mm -hmm. one of the things i think is most critical in this conversation is the idea of customer's perception of self, right? Every purchase you make says something about you as a human, right? So whether that's a business purchasing decision, why do I like using this tool versus that tool, for example, or why do I like having this partner versus that partner? Um, or it's a personal purchasing decision. Why do I drink out of a mason jar and not a Yeti tumbler? Mm. Right. Like there, there are things about that. Um, I can have a 32 ounce water container in a whole number of ways, some branded, some not. Um, but I think what we can do as marketers and salespeople can be really thinking about what is the content I'm creating? What is what I'm putting out there into the world, feeding back into someone's perception of self and confidence. Um, and, and that's an important tie in that maybe we don't always think about. So I, right, I, so like I want, but I do think brand is important in that conversation, right? Yeah, yeah, of course, because of course you guys are going to say that, and I'm and I'm not going to say that brand does not matter, but but I also want to point out that if we're going to have this conversation, especially relative to this article, we can't talk about Joe Schmo's hardware or Lowe's because Joe Schmo's hardware and Lowe's is not a complex decision. Right, the the and and, I, and I'm not even going to go into B to B to versus B to C. What we what we have to understand here is that a complex sale, um, a involves multiple people, and B involves change, right? And so the like I get, you know, the mason jar versus the yeti. There there's a status of that, and what I mean by that is it says something about you, uh, you know, in that choice. If I drive a Mercedes or I drive a this. 
it, that that brand says something about me. That's a tribe. That you know that, that that's kind of a tribe effect, if you will. Um, that is mitigated when you're dealing with multiple um, buyers because now all of a sudden, you know, there there actually is a lot of conflict around there that has to be mitigated that that, that drives that down. So let's talk about the ultimate brand in B2B. The ultimate brand in B2B in history was IBM, right? Because everyone strives to be the IBM. No one ever got fired buying from IBM. But let's look at his, let, let's look at psychologically what the decision to buy IBM is, right? The decision to buy IBM in their heyday was the ability to feel like I wasn't making a decision. It was opting out of making a choice because it was the standard. I think I mentioned in a previous episode, the word homicide and the word decide have the same Latin root. They both mean the same thing. So brand has impact in the sense of, in the absence of other things, all brand does is create safety. Brand creates a feeling of safety. So there is confidence there. Now, if you look at the data around purchase decisions, what you'll find is, brand has about an eight to 11% impact on choice. And it has that impact at the end. It is a, okay, I'm now making choice last piece. So if we wanted to apply Joe Schmo's supply chain versus Lowe's supply chain, if Joe Schmo goes to market the way Lowe's goes to market, then yes, Lowe's will win every time because Lowe's is the safer choice. Hewlett Packard wins because it's the safer choice. IBM wins because it's the safer choice. Salesforce wins because it's the safer choice, right? So that's, that's one piece around brand. Second piece around brand is there's a lot of companies. We don't have the resource. Like, I don't have the resources for for me to have per se brand, I can't play that game, right? I don't have the resources to do it. Now, there's certain brand elements that I, that I can take, that can pick up, but the truth is most, most buyers, they're not thinking, they're not spending enough time on you to think about you to that point for the cost for us to talk about having brand effect, right? So that, that's kind of point number one on brand. You guys wanna push back on that? So I sometimes think about brand in a very similar way to how I think about culture, right? Anthropologist, sorry, going to bring it back there. Culture, pretty much by definition, is nearly impossible to define and explain to an outsider. It's just something that you feel. So while we can identify brand and put colors or logos and taglines and build feelings and sentiments and those types of things and try to control it, there is this element of how do we as a company make a customer or prospect feel? And that's a little bit softer, I think, to me. And that's what I think is really important. Well, so, so on, on that point, you know, A, we have to understand that we don't control our brand. They do. And, yeah. and, and, and so our brand is how they feel about what we do. So we should know what we want our brand to be, which should be, uh, you know, really put forth as a statement of feeling. Right. And then to build that brand, what we should do is behave in the pattern that creates a high probability that people feel that way. So, so for example, right. Cause I can't play brand the way people like, I'm not going to have a brand like IBM. I'm not gonna have a brand like HubSpot. 
right? Because, and that's what I'm talking about, building the brand where, where your brand precedes you. Yeah. Um, what, what I do is like rule number one, know and understand your customer better than they know and understand themselves. Make them feel understood. Stop making them understand you. Well, when I make you feel understood, you get psychological air from that. You get more confidence in yourself. I teach people stop, stop selling yourself and start selling how to make decisions. Right. And so if we look at content, how much content is focused on either just defining the problem or just talking about the solution or just talking about the attributes, you know, who does, or at least did a great job of selling the decision. If you've ever been to Morton's, you've seen how somebody sells a decision because before you start, they say, are you familiar with Morton's? And if you say no, they say, well, let me tell you how we prepare our steaks. And if you say yes, they say, well, then you already know that we prepare our steaks and they go through it's aged like this and it's done like this and it's like this and it's, and what they're doing is they're teaching you what a good steak is. And then you go, wow, I am brilliant. Why, why did you pay $50 for that steak? Well, you have to understand it was, you know, cabin age logged for 50 years. Mm. It came from Omaha. Like I, you know, I don't know. So, so those are the pieces that are, that, you know, that's what creates comfort, right? What we need to do like that, that choice is a very hard mental exercise and, and what salespeople and I think marketers as, as well, we try to power through it. We're so focused on increasing the promoting factors of why to take the decision, like why to do this, that, that we miss what is actually a bigger opportunity, which is how can we reduce the inhibiting factors that, that prevent them from moving forward? The, the point that I was going to pick up on what Julie said earlier is on, on this point of confidence, every decision you make about anything, it's not only a statement of who you are, it is a bet. It is literally a bet on your future, right? And that's why when we feel really good, we go out and we buy cars because the future is going to be better. We buy bigger houses. When all of a sudden people start getting laid off, we start saving money because, uh-oh, the future is going to get worse, right? And so if you want, like, no one is going to spend more than the perceived value, which you it's not going to be quantified like an economist, but their decision is a statement on their confidence about the future state, which, which by the way, it's why when you're in high, high change, high disruption environments, people freeze because they can't make a bet. They can neither bet that it'll be better or that it will be worse. The person, the organization that controls the market is the one that controls the context. The greatest thing we could do from a marketing and sales standpoint to grow business is to help create the context for our customers because context is what creates confidence in making decisions. It's, it's interesting if I, as I'm listening, first of all, this is a master class in like the way that you, you should be thinking because a, there's a, I should make them feel this way, which by the way, the word that keeps like coming to mind during this conversation is safe. Like they need to feel safe, right? And and then there's a thing that you need to do, which the word that keeps coming to mind is simplify. Like you need to simplify everything. The fact that, Doug, you said frozen. And when I think of frozen, I go back to that in a world of information overload, overwhelmed B2B buyers face a crisis 
in confidence. That's what started this article, right? And so if you can make them feel safe, if you can simplify the complex, then and only then do they start to know that it's the best steak ever. Because mm-hmm. it's like they're educated on that choice. It's it's this is this is amazing. It's it's amazing. Now, you did say one thing that I want to dig back up though. Because you started to say the thought leadership portion of this towards the end of, of, your, of your talk. And um, and I'm actually not going to go where I think you think I'm going to go because of the smile that just happened on your face. And by the way, if you're listening to this and you couldn't see the smile on Doug's face, you should be watching this at SprocketTalk.com. I'll just say that for all of you listening on Apple or, uh, you know, Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. Um there is this very interesting thing that uh, I did an interview uh, earlier this week with Bobby Carlton. She's an inbound speaker. We're doing the inbound speaks uh, session now because inbound's coming and we're talking to those speakers. And we were actually talking about thought leadership versus expertise or being an expert and how those are two entirely different things. And she does a really great job of explaining the difference between an expert and the difference of between a thought leader. And so, Doug, I'm actually going to agree with you that if you are perceived as a thought leader, there could be an erosion or a negative effect to that in this process. However, I believe that if you are seen as an expert, and have expertise in that thing, that actually will create that feeling of safety because it's like Morton's and it's they're an expert in the stake. They're educating their expertise on that stake. Oh. And, and hang on. So one thing I will say is anybody who's listening to this, if you're curious of the difference between thought leadership and expertise, go listen to the Bobby Carlton interview. Now, Doug, with that said, unpack what I just handed on your plate for you to to kind of nibble on a little bit. So, so the problem with thought leader and expert is that's about you and it's not about me. Um, and, and what, what we have to remember if we're trying to make a sale and let, let me narrow it down to, we're trying to make a new sale. We're trying to acquire a new customer. So again, this applies to more than just selling. What, what is inherent is, you know, we've got a, the, the point has to be made, whether we make it or a customer, you know, someone figures it out themselves, a decision has to be made to change course and speed. Right. And so there's a psychological, like, so our brains don't want to think Our you know, actually thinking, truly thinking is a, is a high, it takes a lot of energy to do that. So our brain does a, a whole bunch of things to trick us so that it doesn't have to really work. By the way, if, if, I were to ask you a question, what's 12 times 18? Your body would go through the same biochemical response that it would if you were lifting weights. If you were going max reps, you're gonna go through your, your, your pupils are gonna dilate. All the, all the things that happen go through the exact same exercise. And so what we do is we naturally take anything that we hear and we apply it to what we understand. It's why there's the effect. Right. The, the, the more competent you think you are, probably the less competent you actually are. It's why um, it's you know, like Wobegon, gone where 73 percent drivers are above average. Um, what you see is all there is. So there's a psychological principle. Daniel Kahneman talks about it uh, in the book, Think Fast and Slow. Um, it's called prospect theory. But basically what you see is all there is. We have tunnel vision because we live in a tunnel. So we take anything that we hear. And we make it fit on your frame. So here's what thought leadership does. And, and 
um, it depends how you define expertise, but I'll, I'll, so I'll talk about thought leadership. Um, it says, wow, you're smart. Wow, that makes sense, right? And then I apply it to what I know, right? Because it hasn't changed what I'm doing. What insights do is they break frames. So the, the takeaway from thought leadership is, wow, they're really smart. They're really good, right? And insight goes, wait, I might be wrong. Wait, I might, wait, there might be a problem. Um, I, I call it the oh shit moment, right? And in, 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 in its perfect place. Yeah. So, so what an insight does is it breaks the frame. Right, it causes somebody to stop and think and adjust, and and it, and it goes to how you sell is more important than what you sell. You have to change how they think about their situation before they can change how they think about you, right? And so expertise fills a gap, but I'm going through life making decisions as best I can in the context that I can, and so I don't I don't see the gap now if. If I perceive you as having expertise and I have a gap and I've already perceived my gap and I see those two things coming together, then yes, I see safety, right? So yes, expertise will play off and, 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 and just merely thought leadership doesn't play. But from a sales and marketing standpoint, you've got to figure out, again, everyone talks about top of funnel and it's the lightest content that they use. Hey, just use this one pager. It's really easy. It's, you know, it's a checklist. That's, that's, that's top of funnel stuff. And I'm like, no, that's the worst top of funnel stuff you could have. Right. I want to break, I want you to like, you come on my website, you go, wait, I didn't think about it that way. Now, you know what? I don't get immediate response necessarily, mm. but you know, so that's why, that's why I say, come to my, like, I, I tell my salespeople all the time, come to, get them to come to the website five times. They're ours. Interesting. Julie, Julie, thoughts on that? Any? I mean, you said top of funnel content and I was instantly triggered. Um, <laughs> I think people a lot of times think like, oh, top of funnel content shouldn't be valuable. Uh, like it's the throwaway stuff that everyone knows and or like basic or uh quick and it's not necessarily thought-provoking uh so i'm with you there that like i can create as an agency right i can create a top of funnel piece that's like some google analytics deep dive but it's still top of funnel for me um mm, interesting right? interesting yeah. and, and i'm gonna emphasize thought leadership isn't not valuable uh, there's a lot of really great thought leadership. That I, I mean, I've downloaded people will download the hell out of thought leadership. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And I go, they great. This it? is awesome. I mean, uh, they'll, they'll read it too. It doesn't change my course or speed. It's like, Heck, I, I, there's some thought leaders. I download a lot of their stuff. I use it. I go, Hey, let me look at that. That's it. You know, it helps with my thinking. I, it does nothing to make me say I should, I should talk to them. Mm. It does nothing to say yeah. I should buy from them. Right. And, and so it, it, I take it and I consume it. And I mean, thought leadership is wonderful for, for traffic and, and that's not a bad thing. Right. But it doesn't cause someone to change course or speed. Right. And as the article that you shared said, it's not a differentiator anymore. You're not <laughs> going to get more leads because you have more quote unquote thought leadership content. You're going to so, get more eyeballs. Maybe. If you do so, it right. Yeah. So now, now, and we may not have an answer to this, but because I love where we're going with this, my question then is, 
is if you think of this as a funnel, <clears throat> not a flywheel, sorry, HubSpot. Uh, but if you think of this as a funnel and thought leadership is and can be the great top of the funnel type content, and let's say expertise is kind of that in the middle because you can talk about, no, Julie's like, no, no I disagree. No. I okay. disagree. I didn't I disagree. even get the sentence out and she disagrees. No. Okay, no, go, 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 go. I don't think content type and thought leadership versus expertise versus this or that is funnel related at all. I I, I, I think the funnel is a horrible metaphor. I think I think we need to stop talking about the funnel because it's not a funnel, right? The the the, the um there, there's two components to it, right? The first problem with the funnel is you can't adjust velocity. You only have two plays with a funnel. You can push and suck. That's mm -hmm. the only two things you can do with a funnel. You push more in or you suck more out. That's what, anything you go beyond that, you're no longer dealing with a funnel, right? We're going to manage middle of funnel. You can't manage, like you pour oil into the funnel in your car, try to manage the middle of the funnel and see what that will do, right? So we've already blown away the metaphor, right? Um, I don't mind the flywheel from, from, from a growth momentum standpoint. What we're managing is bottlenecks, right? So if you were to look at the, the, the stages of what are called the funnel, uh, and you looked at them through bottlenecks and constraints theory, each one of those pieces creates a bottleneck. So, so discovery is a bottleneck, right? Do I know who you are? Do you know who I am? Um, first action is a bottleneck. Um, consideration, you know, consideration is a bottleneck, right? And, and by the way, if, if consideration is my bottleneck and I'm optimizing the hell out of my sales process, well, you know, that's wonderful. It's not going to change a whole lot. If consideration is my bottleneck and I'm just jamming the hell out of lead generation and we are optimizing, it's not going to do a lot because the most you can impact the system, you know, you've got multiple uh, bottlenecks, but the constraint is where is that single place? And so if you don't understand where that is, then you can't really make that right decision. Right. Um, and so what you have is different processes that are operating on their own basis that, you know, and, and customers, by the way, they jump forward, they jump backwards, they, you know, and, and that that's what building a modern demand generation customer acquisition process needs to be. And it's not linear. The buyer's journey is not linear. And I think especially when we talk B2B and higher consideration sales processes and research processes, um, there's this great Forrester buyer's journey modeling example. And the whole concept behind it, right, is that not every potential business buyer is involved in every stage in every piece of this and every bottleneck opportunity, right? Some people get pulled in like IT towards the end because they're just saying, does this have the security features we need? Could I buy this? Um, can I build this cheaper than I can buy it? Does it have the feature set? Does it integrate with X, Y, or Z or this or that thing, right? Um, some people start at the beginning and then drop off because they're a researcher for an executive and they're not actually part of the decision-making process except the decision to bring it to the executive team. Um, and that's why I think when we say like, oh, thought leadership is top of the funnel. No, thought leadership is all of it. Optimization is all of it. It's, it's all, you have to be thinking about the entirety of this like crazy nonlinear thing. And we use funnel metaphors or flywheel metaphors or linear models or buyer's journey stages to help explain the initial concept, but it's not the practical application of the process and it's not the practical application of how you should use content or anything else.
I'm, I'm curious what you're going to say about this, Julie, because I, I completely agree with you that the, that the journey is absolutely positively not um, not linear. Um, I think it's the combination. If I were to describe the journey, it would be the combination of a pinball machine and a snowball. Um, and, and my point there is, A, it's all over the place, but and B, the more I can be involved in the touch points, the more the snowball builds, so I have more mass, which means more predictability. And I think far too often we, we're, we're, we're trying to get to the point of decision with the least amount of, of uh, mass, if you will, for, for how a whole lot of things are happening. But So I agree with you completely that it is absolutely not linear. And I also think that that fact is not particularly relevant when it comes to designing what your customer acquisition process is. Because what I'm saying is if you look at it as, you know, if you identify where your bottlenecks are in, in the manufacturing process of a customer, if you will, and you understand that each segment is kind of operating on its own, um, you know, picture like the lottery um, ping pong machines as they're, you know, kind of going around until they pop into that, you know, in, into that next phase and they might pop back and they might pop back multiple places or things like that. But you are at one of these points at any particular point in time. And then once you understand those points, there's a limited number of scenarios that are relevant for the context of why you're at that point. And so for me, I can still manage it in a, in a staged fashion that, that is, and I think this is where user design comes in so that you are able to easily and intuitively access the right place at the right time in the right context. Yeah, I, I agree. I, but what I think, what worries me about a lot of stuff that's out there about this kind of stuff is that it presents the buyer's journey, it presents the funnel, whatever it is, as a fairly linear process in which mm -hmm. people should not move backwards and forwards and bang around and do this or do that. And then when that happens, people get worried, right? It freaks people out that all of a sudden the person who I was talking to about this, like, what felt like a bottom of the funnel conversation is now going back and doing some additional research or kind of goes dark, but stays around in my world for a little bit. It's like, well, what it's gone. It's gone. It's well it's around and things come back and you're right. Like more touch points is better. Build the snowball. You know, that, that, that goes partially to why I hate the funnel. Um, because, because, you know, what I would say is someone who's gotten to quote unquote the bottom, who then goes back to the top is in a distinctly different place than somebody who's at the top, right? There, there's, there's a whole underlying context to what's happening. Um, you know, what, what, what sales and marketing needs to do is they need to study what manufacturers learned in the 1980s. Um, I, I, I think where we're moving, where the reason that the funnel has come back in, in spades and all these linear perceptions, and I agree with you, I worry about it as well, is we are massively obsessed with efficiency. And so, and so I think that the, the real underlying issue is less that it, it gets translated as it looks like it's a linear journey. I think the issue is it gets presented as though it's a simple journey. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. So, you know, in, in, in theoretical wonderland, everything is perfectly balanced. And if everything was perfectly balanced, then, then these theories would work. What manufacturers learned was they generated, the more efficient they got, the more money they lost, right? Because they weren't 
understanding what the role of bottlenecks and constraints were. And they were actually doing the absolute wrong thing um, in, in, in a situation. It was very, very counterintuitive. And so I think, you know, if you understand bottleneck and constraint theory, which I realize most people that got into sales and marketing, probably, you know, one of the reasons they got into it was they didn't particularly like physics. You know, they didn't like their physics class. They, they didn't like their, um, their, trigonometry class they didn't want to go into engineering um but really what is marketing and sales it's an engineering function right and and so we need to understand um what's happening there and 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 so that's where i think we you know it gets into trouble because we don't understand where those bottlenecks and constraints come and like i said at the beginning we talk about anything this has been an amazing flow of information over the last what 20 30 minutes and, uh, you know, we even had a section that we we're going to talk about measuring revenue. But guess what? You're going to have to wait for next episode to hear us talk about that. If you do want to hear us talk about measuring revenue, driving revenue, different topics, make sure you use the hashtag, hashtag Sprocket Talk or hashtag The Spot Podcast. Remember to uh, give us a, you know, a like, a fave, whatever on your favorite podcast app. Hit up at D at Doug Davidoff, at Max Jacob Cohen, which, by the way, it's kind of sad him not being on this episode, but he'll be back. He'll be back. And, of course, you can hit me up as well. I do have the final question. Of course, we want you to keep learning and keep growing and doing some happy hub spotting. But there's something that happened during this episode that I have to ask a question. It has to be answered before we let everybody go back to their regularly scheduled day. And that is, that is this. Julie, why do you drink out of a mason jar? So I'm on the phone a lot and to have a smaller glass, which all my other glasses are pint size or smaller, means I have to refill my cup too often and I don't always have meetings in be time in between meetings to do it. So I have my 32 ounce mason jar and it's hard to knock over. One out of 32 ounce Yeti. Because I'm cheap. And there you go. There's the hydration tip of the week. And you also know what, uh, you know, budgetary restraints that Julie has uh, for herself in life. And we, folks, will see you in the next episode.